So Merry Christmas, Christchurch family. Hope you all are having an incredible weekend and hopefully you got to open some fun gifts uh, on Christmas. And uh, as a matter of fact, I was talking to Justin this week and he said, you know, maybe Josh, for your Christmas present to our congregation, you could preach for 90 minutes on a Christmas. And I thought that was a fantastic idea and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll do that. And then it occurred to me that since you're watching online, you could easily, without the social pressure of uh, a congregation around you, that you could easily walk away, turn off the TV, and just go and drink eggnog. And so I decided instead just to share with you some reflections uh, on some of the most iconic and classic characters in the Christmas story. We're going to be talking today about the Magi. And their story picks up in Matthew chapter 2, and so we're going to jump right in. But listen to what it says. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, of course, uh, the wise men are some of the most popular characters in our bathrobe pageants and in our nativity sets. And as a matter of fact, when I was in elementary school, I was a wise man, and I think I did a really good job. My mom told me I did a good job, so I think I did a good job. And, um, but, you know, these are some of our, our favorite characters, and um, they even have their own song, you know, We Three Kings of Orient Star, which the tune of that song, you know, it kind of like, We Three Kings of Orient, it kind of reminds me of like one of the, like the Pirates of the Caribbean for some reason. I don't know why, it just does. But, you know, much of what we think we know about the Magi reflects more Magi lore than it does the biblical text. And so in the third century, it was suggested that there were three, and it was believed that they were kings and represented the three known continents of the world at that time, Europe, Asia, and Africa. And uh, this reflected the hope that one day all of the nations would eventually come and worship the Messiah. And in the Middle Ages, they were given names, uh, Belshazzar, Melkar, and Caspar. And then actually the uh, Empress Helena claimed that their skulls were found, and I understand that you can go see them to this day. Uh, they're actually held in the largest Gothic cathedral in Europe, and so if COVID restrictions lift, uh, summer of 2021, you might consider a pilgrimage there. But, you know, there's a lot of lore surrounding uh, the Magi that doesn't really reflect the biblical text. Uh, there may have been three, there may have been 13, or maybe 30. Uh, we don't know. And they weren't kings, and despite their presence in our nativity sets, they likely showed up sometime uh, within the first one to two years of the birth of Jesus. And when I first learned this back when I was a, a zealous young Christian in high school, I insisted that my parents take the Magi and put them in the backyard uh, so that it reflected that they were on journey to the nativity. Uh, but at any rate... Um, <laughs> Uh, so they weren't kings, uh, there probably wasn't three, there was probably a lot more, then who were they? So the word translated wise men in many of your Bibles, some of your Bibles it says magi, but it's a Greek word magoi, and it actually doesn't give the impression of a wise godly sage, instead the word magoi was often translated as astrologers, and it was very common that in royal courts uh, they would have astrologers that would be a part of the courts who would study the stars in order to provide some intel for events on the earth, you know, they were very superstitious, and they believed that they could 
could discern kind of happenings on the earth by the movement of the stars. And so these are not wise sages, but they are pagan astrologers in the court of some foreign governments. And they decide to take this journey some five, 800 miles across the long deserts in the Arabian, you know, in order to come and render their worship to the Messiah. Now, why did they do this? Well, it says in the text, because they had seen a star. They said that they saw his star when it rose, and he said, we have come to worship him. So what is up with the star? Well, some suggest that the star was perhaps a natural phenomenon, like a supernova. Uh, according to some Chinese archaeologists, there was one such, uh, or astronomers, there was one such a supernova in 45 BC, and that fits the time frame. Uh, others think that it might have been a conjunction of a Saturn and Jupiter in the ancient world. They believe that Jupiter represented the king's royalty and Saturn was the planet that represented the Jewish people. So a conjunction of both of these might mean, you know, as you studied the stars, oh my, you know, a Jewish king is born. But whatever the case, whether it was a supernova or a conjunction of planets or it was some supernatural phenomenon, we don't know what we do know is that God used this to reveal himself to these pagan astrologers. And they took this revelation that they received and they did something with it, being so convinced that this meant something important. The Jewish Messiah, the Jewish king had been born. They embarked on this some six, 800 mile journey in order to enter into Jerusalem to give their best worship and their most proper gifts to the Jewish king. Now, when they arrive in the city of Jerusalem, it creates quite a stir because the text tells us, actually, this is a very dramatic uh, little phrase here uh, for the first readers, because they show up in Jerusalem in the days of Herod the king. Now, who was Herod? Well, Herod was something of a mixed bag. Uh, he was religiously Jewish, racially Arab, but he was politically Roman. And he was a visionary, a master builder. He constructed, you know, these opulent palaces for himself and coliseums in Rome-like fashion. And he rebuilt the temple, this glorious, magnificent temple that was a site for all who would come and see it. So he, he was this incredible builder. He was a skilled politician, but he was also a power-hungry, insecure, narcissistic tyrant. And when he took the throne, Caesar gave him the title, the king of the Jews, and he would do everything in his power in order to keep his hold on that title, the king of the Jews. Just after he came to power, there was a conspiracy to overthrow him. And when it was in, unmasked, he took the 10 conspirators, their wives and their children, and had them publicly executed. Now, of course, that kind of violence uh, was not uncommon in the ancient world. It was kind of the way things went. But Herod took it to another level. Uh, Caesar once quipped that it was safer to be Herod's, uh, or to be Herod's pig than his son. And in fact, in his waning years, he became increasingly paranoid that someone was trying to take his power. And he was so obsessed that he killed his brother and his barber, his mother-in-law, his favorite of 10 wives, as well as their three sons. And so it was in the days of this paranoid, power-hungry, tyrannical king that the, this, this, this group of magi enter into the city 
asking about one who was born king of the Jews. Now question, how do you think Herod felt about the talk of the birth of another king? Verse 3 puts it like this, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem was with him. You bet they were, you know. Herod was like, mama, if Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And Herod was freaked out, and so what he does is he calls the, the scribes and Pharisees together, and he asked them when the Messiah was to be born. Look what it says, verse 4. It says, in assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, was to be born. No doubt it was a fear playing in the back of his mind. I, I'm, I'm the pretender king. What's going to happen when the real, true king, God's king, shows up? So he inquires of the scribes, the religious leaders, and they are no slouch. They know the right answers, and they tell him the, the, the correct biblical text. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler, a king, who will shepherd my people Israel." So after he gets the right information from the scribes, the right Bible text telling him where the king is going to be born in Bethlehem, actually not Jerusalem, he invites the, uh, the Magi to come and he holds court with them and he says, look, I want you guys to go down to Bethlehem and find the Jewish king and when you do, come back and let me know so I can go worship him also. Of course, he planned to kill him. So the, the, Magi, the Magi hear this and look at what it says. It says, verse 9, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, I was trying to imagine these wealthy elite astrologers who, 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 who shared time in the royal courts, uh, their imagination coming into Jerusalem, they thought surely where they would find this king was in the courts in the royal palace of King Herod, and they go there, and Herod says, no, it's down in Bethlehem. And then they leave the opulent palace, the beautiful courts of Herod, the big city Jerusalem, and they head down it must have been to their shock and surprise, to the dry, dusty, unimportant, unpretentious town of Bethlehem. And I just imagine them going down to this little village and walking into this village and kind of walking through kind of a little bit more of the affluent part of town, and then going through the middle class part of town, all the way back to the section eight housing where a star was shining down on this little peasant home. And I just imagine the wealthy elite, this powerful group of magi with all of their entourage with them, squeezing into the, the small quarters of this peasant home in front of this teenage mom with her working class husband and falling down on their face, the whole lot of them, and delivering their, delivering their best gifts to the true king of the world. And it says, and then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, all of the right gifts you would expect to give to royalty. 
and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. I want to pause now and I just want to stand back and I just want to make two observations for your consideration, for my consideration this Christmas about this story. And the first observation I want you to see is this. This is not a story about three kings. This is a story about two kings. It's a story about King Herod and King Jesus. And these two kings in this story represent two kingdoms. Herod represents the kingdom of man. And what is that kingdom like? Well, it's a kingdom that is all about power and holding that power and exercising that power and using that power to do violence to anybody who threatens your hold on power. It's a kingdom of man. It's a kingdom that exerts oppressive taxes, uh, that serves the self and not the good of the neighbor with generosity and kindness and, and relational healing in the world. This is an oppressive, abusive, violent kingdom, and it's represented in King Herod. And this kingdom is contrasted with a new king and a different kind of kingdom. It's the kingdom of Jesus. And this is a kingdom of neighborliness and generosity and humility. It is a kingdom for the lowly. It is a kingdom for peasants. It is a kingdom for the poor. It's a kingdom that all of the kings of the world are ultimately called to bow down before and give their true worship and their best gifts to. And I think in this story, we're seeing, we're meant to see a contrast between these two types of kingdoms. And I think maybe we're supposed to ask some questions of ourselves about which kind of kingdom we find ourselves at Christmas most enthralled by. The kingdom of man with all of its power and wealth and opulence or the kingdom of Jesus that is for the humble and the outcast and the poor among us. This kingdom that is characterized by neighborliness and generosity and love. It's a peaceable kingdom, not a violent power-grabbing, power-hungry kingdom. And this kingdom, it's, it's, it's the ones who exercise power in this kingdom exercise it in a radically different sort of way. Jesus put it like this. He said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Jesus, our Lord, this is how he says the rulers of this world exercise power. They use their power to feed their ego, to enrich themselves, uh, to get themselves reelected, and to further their own hold on power. But Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must become your servant. You know, Christmas is about a lot of things. Christmas is about reindeer and Santa and gifts and Buddy the Elf. It is about, you know, eggnog and peppermint, peppermint bark, right? I mean, peppermint bark. But, but before Christmas is about anything else, Christmas is about the birth into this old world of earthly kingdoms, of a new kind of kingdom and a new king who has come to exercise power in a radically different way on this earth. You know, oftentimes we think about the earthly kingdom versus the heavenly kingdom as if they are primarily concerned about geographical locations. You know, the kingdom of man is on earth, but, you know, God's kingdom is up in heaven. 
but actually it would be more true to say that these kingdoms are about how we exercise power on the earth. And it's about using power in radically different other kind of ways. Using your words, you know, think about all the different ways you have to exercise power. Take all, all of that, how you use your words, your attitude, uh, the position you hold at work, uh, your wealth, your home, whatever instruments of power you have, using that in order to bless and benefit and love and serve others. And so number one, we are intended to see this as a contrast between two kings and two kingdoms that they represent. But the second thing I want you to observe, this is not only a contrast between two kings. Uh, this story shows us two ways we can respond to these two kings and the kingdoms they represent. And it's interesting, you know, in this story, there, there's, there, there really is a contrast, I think, between the pagan astrologers who no doubt served in the court of some pagan kings way hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem, which was the city of the true God where the true people of God lived. And we're meant to contrast that group, the Magi, who, who actually practiced something that was forbidden and condemned within Judaism. In other words, the Magi were outsiders to the covenant people of God. And we're meant, I think, in this story to contrast it with the insiders in our story. And who are they? Where they, they, they're a group that also held some power in the courts of Pharaoh. They were the religious leaders, the scribes, and the chief priests. These were, were the people who knew their Bibles. They had the right answers. They knew where you could find the Messiah. It's in Bethlehem. I've studied my Bible. I know the answer. And uh, what's fascinating in this story, though, is that it is the outsiders, not the insiders. And we should note this well, those of us, I mean, I, I feel like for me personally, I, I, I'm an insider, I mean, I'm a professional, you know, like I, I study the Bible, I, I think I know the answers. And I think all of us who are in that camp, we need to note well that it is the outsiders who respond not to a deep knowledge they have of scripture, but with a simple response to the knowledge, to the revelation that they did have the star, it is these people that take the radical and costly decision to cross vast expanses of the desert to render their most expensive and precious stuff before Jesus, the true king. It is the outsiders, not the insiders, who are not ashamed of the strange, upside-down nature of this kingdom. It is not found in the palace. It is not found with the wealthy and the elite. It is found in Bethlehem, in the in unimportant, uh, unpretentious city among the peasants and the poor. It is the outsiders who get this and who give everything in order to go discover this great treasure in Bethlehem. They are like those in the story that Jesus told who when they found the pearl of great price, they went and sold everything they have to have this precious pearl, this new king and all that his kingdom represents. And we're meant to contrast that with the insiders, the, the Bible believing people who have the right answers, but who prefer actually the shelter and the coziness of being in the halls of political power than they do actually to leave those halls at risk to their life to ultimately go down and to make the radical step and to worship this counterintuitive, countercultural king in Bethlehem. 
And I think it, we see this at least in this, in this contrast. Like if there is a way, if you want a picture of what it looks like to really celebrate Christmas, like if you want to know like what is the true meaning of Christmas, you know, remember Charlie Brown Christmas special? You know, poor Charlie Brown ran around the whole, Charlie, I, I love the Charlie Brown Christmas special, don't you? You know, Linus, Charlie Brown, love them all. But you know, Charlie Brown at one point throws his hands up in exasperation. Charlie, you know, tell me what is the true meaning of Christmas? Uh, and uh, it, here it is. It is seen in the response of these magi. They tell you and I how to celebrate Christmas. It is to take difficult and arduous long journeys for the sake of holding on to and cherishing your faith in this new king. Now, of course, for some people who have actually made a journey across the world to go serve as a missionary in a foreign land, that's a real journey they've taken. But for some of you, the long, arduous journey you need to take is it's a journey of struggling with your unbelief, of your intellectual problems, your emotional difficulties. Like, I, I, I'm not feeling it, but I'm gonna keep pressing in. I'm gonna keep walking through the desert so that I can find this king. What does it mean to, to celebrate Christmas? It means to take these long journeys for this king. It, it means to, to come and, and to give up our previous ideas about what it might mean to be religious. It's not about getting a particular political party. It's not about looking churchy and religious. It, it is not even about doing, you know, good stuff. It, it, is, it is about reorienting your life around this radically alternate king, Jesus, who has come and given himself utterly and completely away for us. And it, it means falling down before him and rendering him our most expensive gifts. It means using your, your, your stuff that's of most value, your time, your house, your money, your bank account. Like it, it's using this stuff to, 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 to put in the service of Jesus and his radical countercultural kingdom. But you know, above all else that I think we see in this story, and I think what ultimately would motivate any of us to take this kind of long journey to reorient our life around this Jesus, the true king of the world, and participate in his beautiful counterintuitive countercultural kingdom is when we see that ultimately there was one who took a much longer journey than the Magi. Our Lord Jesus didn't just travel six or 800 miles from the east to go all the way to Jerusalem. He came from heaven all the way to earth. And he didn't simply come and give us costly gifts like gold and frankincense and myrrh. He gave his very life in your place and for your said. And when that good news goes down inside your heart, that becomes like this seed that germinates and it starts to lead you in lives that, that are willing to take radical journeys and give costly gifts for the sake of this great king and reorient all of your life around him. And may you and I rediscover that truth afresh this Christmas. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come to you now and we thank you that you have given everything for us in Christ. Our great God, we thank you that you in Christ have become flesh to dwell among us, 
that you take, you took a long journey from heaven to earth in order to bear our sin and shame, in order to break the power of darkness, in order to inaugurate your kingdom of love and peace and joy in the midst of this kingdom of darkness. And God, we just ask that you would fill us again with joy and with radical commitment to be participants in this kingdom and to be full of great love for your son, Jesus, our great king. And it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen.